You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, good morning, everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Again, my name is Barry, and it's such a privilege to be your tour guide through the scriptures here this morning. Today, the Bethel Bible churches are beginning a new series through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And this morning, we'll, be, we'll begin that series by looking at Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. And I'll go ahead and read that passage right now. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray together before we begin. Sir, we thank you for the opportunity to continue worshiping you now through the study of your word. And so as your living word is taught and received, we look forward to hearing personally from you through the power and person and ministry of your Holy Spirit. And for this, we give thanks in advance in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the righteous, and all those in agreement said, Amen. Well, we're starting a a new book. It's Colossians this time, which means an introduction is in order. So let's do an introduction to Colossians, not to take too much away from Clint for next week, but let's start with the city of Colossae. It's located about 120 miles to the east, southeast of the famous city of Ephesus over on the west coast of modern Turkey. And so it's located in in, in beautiful southwestern Turkey of today, and, and, and I do mean beautiful. I haven't seen all of Turkey, but Southwest Turkey is just extraordinarily beautiful. Mountains, valley, oh, it's just incredible, the coastline. So it is located in the Lycus Plain on the Lycus River, a very beautiful location. You've got Mount Cadmus in the distance, over 8,000 feet rising above. It's just astonishingly beautiful. But in New Testament times, it was located in the Roman province of Asia Minor. You may recognize that from the book of Acts. As a city, it was continuously inhabited from about 3500 BC until its final destruction in 1200 AD. That's 4,700 years of combined human history in one city. So that's not just five centuries. That's nearly five millennia of history. That's a long time. And so going back, it was part of the ancient Hittite Empire, which was Hittite Empire existed before, during, and after the time of Abraham in the Promised Land. Then it became part of, really central to the mighty Phrygian Empire, then the Persian Empire, and then on into the Greek empires. First that of Alexander, then to the Seleucids and the Italids, and then finally... It, along with much of that area, was deeded as a gift by the Greeks to Rome in the year 129 B.C. It's located on the main east-west road that connected the civilizations, the mighty civilizations in the east, 
with the West, and so it didn't have the luxury of isolationism if it had desired. It's smack dab in the middle of the action. The area was very prone to seismic activity, having moved from Southern California, I can tell you that's always fun. And there were three tectonic plates that kind of came together in the area, so it has quite a history of seismic activity. It was one of three important cities in the area, the other two being Hierapolis and Laodicea. Colosse uh, was famous for its wool. That was its main source of income. The wool of that place is called Colossinus. Uh, and there's another little-known little fact about Colosse. Colosse, Coloss, is where the first colostomy was actually performed. That's where that gross thing came from. And, but they don't want to be known for that. Now, the real reason you never heard of that because it's completely not true. If... <laughs> If you've heard of silly songs with Larry, I like to do silly words with Barry once in a while just to see if people are napping on the Greek and the Hebrew there. But what it is known for is its religious or spiritual syncretism, which means a mixing of belief systems, kind of like a smorgasbord, a little of this, a little of that, and come away with whatever you want. Probably some elements, although it's quite early in the, in the history of Gnosticism, but probably some early elements of Gnosticism mixed with pagan beliefs mixed with more likely some elements of Judaism. But on a good note, the city of Colossae seems to have been populated by some wonderfully can-do people, which I always admire here on earth. For instance, th this letter that we're studying is written in the early 60s, and later on in that decade, the city was dis destroyed by an earthquake, but the citizens rebuilt it without the help of Rome. So there's some can-do people, and, and what we're going to see is this is a can-do church. Now, let's talk about the church at Colossae. It seems to have been established by a guy named Epaphras as he evangelized during the time that Paul ministered in Ephesus for two-plus years. You'll find that in Acts chapter 19. And Epaphras seems also to have done the same thing in the nearby cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And it's believed that he kind of became a bishop over those three churches. Now, as far as we know, the Apostle Paul never visited the church there. And if you're familiar with the book of Philemon, Philemon, this is his home church and city. And that's where he lived and worshipped and where, of course, after this, dear Onesimus will be worshipping as well. And as we look at Paul's letter to them, they seem to have gotten off to a great start as a church and are generally doing very well with only a few minor issues of concern to the great apostle. Now let's talk about the letter to Colossae. It is written by Paul, as we see here, with a bit of help from Timothy. No reason to doubt that whatsoever. Written in what we believe is the early 60s of the first century AD, during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, during which time he also wrote the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, and to Philemon. Also, as we'll see later in this letter, he wrote another letter to the church at Laodicea, which went out with this very same letter. However, that one hasn't survived history. The Holy Spirit had no interest in making it part of the New Testament. And so Epaphras has traveled to Rome in order to visit and encourage Paul. And like any pastor, he couldn't help talk about his, but talk about his church while he was there. And so Paul wrote this wonderful letter to the church after hearing all about the believers at Colossae. So let's jump right in. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Here in verse 1, we have the from section of the letter, and that's how letters began in those days, as I'm sure you all know by now. Did you catch that? I got a y'all in there. I've been here three years. It's, it's coming naturally to me now. 
But uh, that's how they began letters in those days. We tend to wait to the end of the letter to identify the writer. I like their way a little better. You know who the letter's from, in case you actually do write letters anymore these days. But we see clearly that the primary author of the letter is Paul, and Paul is also joined to a smaller degree in the writing by his dear son in the faith, Timothy. And we can only imagine what a blessing it is for Paul to have Timothy so close to him, so dear to him, there with him during his time of imprisonment. But right away we see something, and that's that Paul plays the apostle card. He takes the apostle card out of his pocket and displays it as he begins this letter. To me, this generally means one of two things and possibly a combination of these two things. The first is that Paul doesn't have a particularly close relationship with the church to whom he's writing. For instance, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul doesn't mention his apostleship when he begins that letter. And so that letter turns out to be quite warm and welcoming. There aren't any big issues to deal with. And he has a personal relationship with that congregation. The second thing that it can mean is that Paul is going to have to deal with some tough issues and so emphasizes his apostolic authority while he's doing so. This is especially true of the letters to Corinthians and Galatians where he really has to come down pretty hard on some of the things that are going on. But here, in the case of Colossians, it looks like nothing more than the fact that Paul is a stranger to the church there. Now, by this time, of course, everybody knew of Paul and how God had appointed him and was using him mightily in the Gentile or non-Jewish world. So that brings us to the question, hey, Barry, what is an apostle? Well, in its most basic sense, in the Greek, it simply means sent one, one who is sent. And so Paul had been specially ordained and sent by God. That's in its most basic sense. But in a more serious sense, in a more detailed sense, in this case, it also means an original sent one whose purpose was to set the foundation of the church. And there were only a very few of these men and their ministry only occurred at the beginning of church history. Here's what this same Paul writes in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verses 18 through 22. Excuse me. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking of Jews and Greeks alike, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. So bottom line, Paul's a heavy hitter in the early church, quite possibly, and I think it's obvious he's the heaviest hitter in the church that there was. But even so, he tries to use that privilege carefully and wisely, as we always should when God puts us in positions of power and influence over others. And now let's move on into the two section of the letter, verse 2a. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul's address to the Christians, Christians at Colossae couldn't start out any more wonderfully for them than this. He calls them both saints and faithful brothers in Christ. So let's take a look at these terms. First, let's look at the term saints. In the Greek, this is the word hagias, and it simply means set apart ones or those set apart for special service is the way I like to think of it. Let me, let me give you an example. In our homes, we have our common everyday china. In my house, I wouldn't call it china. It's more like really nice plastic. 
but you also have your heirloom china that's tucked away in bubble wrap and the, and the real silver silverware somewhere with, and you bring it out and you gotta have gloves on it. Now you only, like normally you just use the normal paper plates or whatever, but when Pastor Clint comes over, boy, then the heirloom stuff comes out, the real silver, because he's such a special and honored guest. That's the idea. It's set apart for a special purpose. That's the idea of sainthood. It simply means set apart ones or those set apart for special service. It speaks in the New Testament of every single person who has been born again, unlike the Catholic way of looking at things. It doesn't mean you have a halo or have done X number of miracles or the Pope has received a message from God on your behalf. It means simply and beautifully this, that God, if you are born again, God has set you apart for special service to him. Now, a born-again believer, a born-again person has a free will, though, and that hasn't changed. And he or she may or may not act in a way that is actually set apart for special service, leading us to the next phrase that Paul uses for the Colossians. He calls them faithful brothers in Christ. Now, on a joyful note here for the ladies, just because Paul says faithful brothers in Christ doesn't exclude you from this. It's really faithful brothers and sisters. The Greek here is much like the Spanish. If we have a group of men, and I can call them hermanos brothers. If we have a group of women, I can say hermanas or sisters. If I have a group of, a mixed group of men and women, I can just say, I can say hermanas y hermanos, brothers and sisters, or I can say hermanos. It covers both of the sexes in Spanish. It does the same in the Greek here. So they are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only were the Colossians classified as saints, meaning that they were born again, but they were also those who were faithful to their Savior and his call upon their lives. And again, not all saints are necessarily faithful to him. Not all of them act like those set apart for special service. This means of the Colossian believers that they were consecrated. They were dedicated to him. Let me explain that a little bit. When we consecrate ourselves, that's our human duty. It's nothing more than saying, as Isaiah once said, here am I, send me. Lord, I want to be used. We could consecrate, set apart a certain portion of our lives. Like, for instance, Lord, I'm setting, I'm, I'm dedicating the music that I listen to for you. That's consecration. It it's belongs to you from here on out. And then God will sanctify us through that. So when we consecrate ourselves, which is our human duty, then God is faithful to purify us and mold us into the likeness of Christ, which is the idea of sanctification. That's God's duty. So when we consecrate, we make ourselves available. It might be a portion of our lives. It might be for a time, something special, or it might be all of our lives. Then God does his great work, which is sanctification. And wonderfully, these Colossian believers were consecrated people and therefore being sanctified. And now Paul moves on to his salutation, verse 2b, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul's warm salutation here begins with what we call the Siamese twins of the New Testament or maybe the twin sisters of the New Testament, and they are grace and peace. And so often, especially in the writings and the salutations of Paul, are connected together. So let's look at those 
Grace is a most beautiful word and is defined simply as unmerited favor or more simply for me as I tell it to my grandsons, favor that you don't deserve. That's the idea of grace. However, in the New Testament sense, it is further encapsulated in favor from heaven that you don't deserve, favor from God that you don't deserve, and which is shown to undeserving sinners, who, by the way, we're speaking of humanity, who are enemies of God, both by nature and conduct, that's how we're born into this world, this favor from heaven that we don't deserve is shown to undeserving sinners through the substitutionary death of a sinless and divine Jesus upon the cross. Here's what Paul will write in Romans 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for thee. Is that godly or ungodly there? That's ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still perfect, no sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were allies, friends, no. The scripture says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This should underscore for each one of us that we had and still have and will always never have or have absolutely nothing in and of ourselves that commends us before a holy God. There is nothing in us that commends us to God that we have to offer him. We stand before him only on the basis of his free gift to us and not on anything we have or may think we have or done or may think we have done to offer him. Here is where Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is so famously clear. For by grace, for by the undeserved favor from heaven, you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, as a, result, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Bottom line here, grace operates in one direction. It comes from heaven to us, and it is the entire, and I do mean the entire basis for our relationship with him. It is not 90% grace and 10% our works or our goodness. It is not 95% grace and 5% our works or our goodness. It is not even 99.9% grace and 0.1 us. It is absolutely 100% grace by which we stand before God. And thank God for that because if it had anything to do with you or with me, we would fail miserably, always will, always shall. Thank God it is simply by his grace which leads us now to its twin sister, peace. This greeting of peace, by the way, has nothing to do with world conditions, peace between Russia and Ukraine or between other nations and people and etc. It speaks rather of that all-important peace between God and a human being. That is one of the deepest longings, if not the deepest longing, for the human soul in which God has placed 
thoughts of eternity. It is to be at peace with God. The unfortunate problem that we have being human beings is that we are born sinners by nature and by conduct. As we saw earlier, we are born his enemies. We are not his allies. We are sinners and we are set apart from him and we are doomed to be apart from him forever. And so because he is holy and we are not, we cannot technically have fellowship. Therefore, there is conflict because we are sinful and he is holy. Conflict, deep conflict between us and God. And so what this means is that there, when, when, when we're talking about Paul wishes peace, it means then what he is wishing or greeting that there is no inherent conflict between God and that person, that there is a shalom between man and God. And there is only one way, one way, that we can know shalom between us and God, and that's to have trusted in the salvation of God's Son, who through his death removed the charges arrayed and written against us of all of the evil things that we have done in our lives. Or in other words, to have been the recipients of grace. Now grace in these Letters of Paul and others may be used singularly. At times it is. May the grace of the Lord be upon you. And peace sometimes is used singularly, apart from grace, as, as we can imagine. However, they are used together quite often, especially by Paul. And when they are, grace always precedes peace for the reasons that I have just mentioned. We cannot know peace with God until we experience his extraordinary grace. So, grace and peace to you from God our Father this morning. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. As Paul considers what to write to the believers at Colossae, the overwhelming sentiment seems to be a deep, deep thankfulness for them. In fact, when he prays for them, thankfulness, in his own words, is the first thing that springs forth from his praying. What causes such thankfulness in the apostle? Verse 4a, he said, so continuing now, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, verse 4a, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The first reason for such thankfulness is their beautiful faith in Christ Jesus. And the context to me here seems to indicate a couple of different elements of that faith, and they're wonderful. He was thankful, it seems to me, for their original faith. That would be the faith that saw them trust in Christ Jesus for their salvation. That's a beginning faith. But also he was thankful for their continuing faith. The faith that sees them trusting as Christ, in Christ Jesus as Lord of their lives, meaning that they live for him and him alone. This is a living faith. So the church at Colossae have a beginning faith that's grown and continued into a living faith which is beautiful. But wait, like any good Ronco commercial, there's more. Verse 4b. And of the love that you have for all the saints. Another wonderful characteristic of the church at Colossae is that they were a deeply loving church. And while there's no doubt in my mind that they have a deep love for the lost in Colossae and everywhere, we'll see evidence of this in a bit as we continue, this love of theirs is most notably expressed in their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ everywhere. Now we know this kind of love. It is our dear friend agape, which is defined most perfectly for us. 
upon the cross of Jesus Christ. That is agape. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Where did he lay down his life for us? For the cross. So love is defined by the act of the cross. Agape is. And so we know this kind of love, agape, is sacrificial and outward, never thinking of oneself, meaning that these amazing believers in Colossae were in serious prayer for their brothers and sisters in Christ. They served them with perhaps the thing most expensive to them as it is to us today, their time. They spent their time in prayer for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And add to that that they were always looking to help and minister to their brothers and sisters in Christ anywhere, no matter what that would require of them. That's agape, sacrificial love. Now, then the question becomes, well, what, who are their brothers and sisters in Christ? What kind of people are their brothers and sisters in Christ at that time? Well, they would be brothers and sisters in Christ of their same ethnicity, but could just as easily be their brothers and sisters of Christ in a, of a different ethnicity. They could be their brothers and sisters in Christ of the same race as we continue to think of it today, or they could be their brothers and sisters in Christ of a different race. They could be their brothers and sisters of Christ in Christ of the same social strata as they or from different social strata. And so what we would see is we would see the poor are loving, deeply loving the rich in Christ. And the rich are deeply loving the poor in Christ. The free are deeply loving those who are slaves in Christ. And those who are slaves in Christ are deeply loving the free in Christ. It is beautiful. In fact, the world had never seen that kind of love. And it was therefore changing the world from the inside out. But we'll come back to that in a bit. Now the question becomes, where does this love come from? And wonderfully, the answer to that question is the one thing we absolutely cannot live without on this fallen planet, and that's the idea of hope. Taking us to verse 5a, <clears throat> Paul says, continuing, why do they love? Verse 5a, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. One of the things I have discovered in my, my decades of ministry and of teaching the word is that our gracious God, our good God, it's really, really big on the idea of hope because hope is the answer to despair and is the ingredient most necessary to truly live on this fallen planet of ours. In fact, God is so very big on the idea of hope that even in humanity's darkest moment, he wouldn't allow us to live for even a single day, to exist for even a single day without the idea of hope beating in our breasts. I'll take you back to the Garden of Eden. This is chapter three. Adam has sinned. He has plunged humanity all of humanity into sin, into death, and in separation from God. He has plunged all of creation into decay. Satan has now become the prince of the power of the air and the de facto owner of creation. And we are separated from God. In fact, they're, they're so ashamed at what they have done, Adam and Eve, that they make loin fig fig tree, fig leaf loincloths to cover themselves, hide their nakedness and they were so ashamed for what they had done because Adam knew, oh my, I have just doomed humanity to a destiny of sin and separation from God and there is therefore now absolutely no hope that I can ever regain a relationship with God. Stepping into the picture, of course, God comes into the garden. I believe this is none other than an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ appearing in the garden to Adam on that day. And I'll make the story short. 
of all the things that God says in the garden of that day, he speaks to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And there in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. Bear in mind, this is the day of the fall. On that day, he makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day upon this earth will come a hero, a redeemer, a champion who will undo everything that has just been done in the garden. Everything that Adam and Satan have just plunged us into, God promises on that very day that one day a redeemer, that redeemer, I believe, is going to be the very person standing in the garden making this promise to them. He is going to one day come and undo all of that. And as the scripture unfolds, we come to understand that's good that that's going to be at the price of his sinless, his sinless life and his perfect blood. That will one day come. And these Colossian Christians now live on the finished side of that great redemption. It had happened about 30 years earlier when our hero, that great redeemer, that great champion whom we know as Jesus Christ, had come and paid the full price for sins, yours and mine and for everybody's. And so because of that, they only, they could look back and know the moment they were born again that they were fully immersed in the hope that our salvation brings. They were so hopeful and this hope sprang, it was a wellspring within them and they sprang out into works and love and, and beautiful things and it's only fitting for us here this morning to review elements of that hope which is laid up for us in heaven and understand not anywhere near all of the elements of that hope, but some of them. Let's review that in, in these elements or one of the elements of this hope is the sure promise that we have of eternal life. That's just John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. An element of that hope is found in the sure promise that our sins are now eternally forgiven, not just for a little while, but forever. Luke 23, 39 through 43 is the scene where all three men are hanging on the cross. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, brother, we're getting, we're getting what our sins deserve. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due record for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He recognized his Messiah hanging on the cross between them. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, meaning Jesus, said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our sins are forgiven forever. Another element of that great hope is the sure promise that you and I, though we deserve it, will never see hell despite how much we deserve it. 2 Corinthians 5.8. Again, Paul writes, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Then there is the element of hope and the sure promise that we are co-heirs with Christ. We will inherit his heavenly estate with him. Romans 8, 17, Paul speaking, and if children, children of God, he's saying, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Another element of this hope is the sure promise that we are considered forever blameless and righteous by the Father because of our adopted position in Christ. Again, this is grace, nothing we've done. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, meaning Jesus, or God, he, meaning God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Another element of this hope is the sure promise that we have a higher destiny than the angels. In the NIV, Hebrews 1.14 reads as follows, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Us. But of us born-again believers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.3, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Finally, and again, this is, doesn't include everything. It's just a, a synopsis. An element of hope is in the sure promise that we will live forever in God's presence. And I might add to that without annoying him. I think that's important. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18, speaking of that great moment to come called the rapture, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Bottom line, I know that was a lot. There is nothing more sustaining, there's nothing more encouraging in this fallen, sin-darkened world of ours than an understanding of the glorious hope contained within the amazing gospel, that's good news, brought to us through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. As Paul now states, moving on into verse 5b, speaking of this hope, he said, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This is a great reminder to us today that a presentation of the good news must contain certain elements. Everyone wants to go to the end and talk about how wonderful the good news is. And indeed it is wonderful, but what would the good news be if it weren't framed in the background of the bad news that must first come? And the bad news, I've already talked about it. There is really, really bad news. As the Bible defines us, we are an enemy of God. We are sinners by conduct and by nature. We are against him. We have sinned against him. There is a list of written charges against him about which we can do absolutely nothing because the price, as the plan of redemption has shown us, has to be paid by sinless blood, and there is no such thing as sinless blood among us. We are doomed to an eternity in a place called hell, completely apart from every attribute of God and his nature, a place not created for us, created for the devil and his angels, but which we will go to without being forgiven. That's the bad news. That's the state into which our children and grandchildren and we were born into this planet. We are in a bad, bad way. But then we add another element to that. That's the, when a jeweler brings out a diamond, they usually bring it out, they have the lights glittering and they put it on a black background so that the brilliance of the diamond shines all the more. That's what the bad news does for the good news. So we bring out that dark element of who we, who we really are as fallen human beings, but then we add to that the beautiful plan of redemption because it reveals the heart of God for us, beginning in Genesis 3:15 and following it all the way to the cross of Christ, and there we get to the substitutionary death of a sinless and divine Jesus. And then we add to our gospel now what happens the moment that we are saved and born again. We add to that these beautiful facets of hope contained in the process of being born again. And this hope is especially necessary because the world in which we live will treat us the way it treated our Savior. And we have to be very clear when we put forth the gospel message that unlike the church a few hours south of here that teaches God just wants to make you all happy, friends. He wants to bless you in every single way and nothing bad's ever going to happen in your life. It's hogwash. It's hogwash. Hope is necessary because this world hates our Lord and Savior. 
And it wants to treat us exactly the way it treated him. It wants to do to us exactly what it would do to him. It is the better way. Don't get me wrong. I I gave my life to the Lord at age 15, the first time I heard the gospel message. And I gave my life to him. I wouldn't change that for the world. But is it easy? No, absolutely not. It is the harder choice. It is swimming upstream. It is the path of greatest resistance to the sinful nature and in this world. And so this hope is necessary for us to survive being followers of Christ in a darkened world. Now back to the beautiful idea of the gospel, verse 6. Paul continues, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That beautiful fullness inherent to, to the good news was faithfully preached to the lost in the city of Colossae. And the love of God as shown through his grace and the depth of the hope of the eternal destiny of believers was not without amazing effect upon them. Not only did these once lost folks in Colossae immediately begin deeply loving one another against all social norms of the times, but they began loving the lost with the very heart of God as revealed and the beautiful plan of redemption. And that otherworldly love immediately led many into the arms of our Savior and, as Paul wrote this, was still leading many into the arms of the Savior even as Paul penned these words. So who was that faithful preacher who brought that beautiful message to the lost at Colossae? Verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Yep, you guessed it, none other than their beloved Epaphras. We can only imagine what what a blessing it was to the folks of the church at Colossae to have Paul, the Apostle Paul, this great one in the church, speak so highly of their own dear pastor and shepherd. A great reminder to us, by the way, folks, to not withhold compliments when they're deserved in this life. Life is tough here. It's a fallen world. Don't withhold compliments when they're deserved. And I mean that with your kids and with your grandkids, with your parents, with your spouse, with your friends, your neighbors, with those who are faithful in ministry like Epaphras, which is all too often a thankful task. And and let me assure you, as one in ministry for decades, people can be extremely brutal to their pastors. I don't know why, but they feel they have the license to be brutal to their pastors. Don't be that. Give out the compliments. A great time to consider, by the way, as we look at this, not waiting until you die to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the Lord. It is true that Paul is pinning these words, but remember, this is scripture. And he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit as a ship is carried along by the wind. Which means Paul is pinning these words, but that the sentiment is coming from God himself. God is complimenting Epaphras. God is complimenting this faithful pastor and shepherd. And so that, these are words coming from the Lord. And I would submit this to us, that if we are willing to be still and to sit at his feet, often as Mary does, and to listen to him, you and I will have the blessing of hearing God from time to time compliment us on our walk. We, trust me, we, because we're fallen, we are so hard on ourselves, aren't we? We see our sins. We see our failings. We don't see ourselves as God sees us. God sees us, I think, my grandsons have taught me um, uh, more about grace probably than anything because I, I see them 
through grandfatherly eyes. And my eyes always smile when I see them. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. But they're my grandsons, and I love them so deeply. And we tend to forget that God sees us with, I would say, grandfatherly eyes. He always smiles when he sees us. That's just his nature with us. We are his children now. So what else has Epaphras been doing in Rome? Verse 8, and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Like any good pastor with a great church, he's been bragging on his church. Paul, Paul, look how they love. Paul, look how they live. Paul, look how they pray. Paul, look how they evangelize. Aren't they amazing? Oh, what a proud pastor he was. And that's our verse-by-verse verse portion for this morning. Now let's move into our final thoughts, which center around the issue of hope. I'm going to break this down into two sections. The first is for the unsaved among us here this morning who are watching or listening either now or in the future. First of all, we're so thankful that you're with us. We love you. We pray for you. And we want you to know that we love you and we pray for you. And we were once in your shoes. We want you to know this is a great place for you. The church is nothing if not a hospital for the sinners and for the lost and for the broken. You're very welcome here. And if you take away one thing from this message this morning, I pray that it is that you know how very much God loves you. And I mean personally loves you. He loves you so much that he has never allowed you to live a single second without eternal hope upon this planet. He loves you so much that he sacrificed his own son in order to give you that hope. And he loves you so much that he has made that hope a free gift to you if you ask him for forgiveness and submit to the lordship of Jesus over your life. Now for the saved among us, this opening of the letter to the Colossian believers is kind of a gut check. If we aren't internally driven, meaning this, if we aren't internally driven by the depth and the beauty of the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, there's something deeply wrong with our walk. You see, that marvelous hope absolutely changed the landscape of the ancient world. Therefore, if it's not changing things in us and around us, then we're not being affected by that hope. And if we're not being affected by that hope, we're becoming like those of Colossae's nearby neighbor, the church at Laodicea, to whom Jesus will write in 30 years' time that they have left their first love and who are in danger of having their golden lampstand, their church, removed from service. But if this is the case with us, brother and sister, then the answer is beautifully simple. We get back to the true, glorious basics of the gospel and the hope it inspires, as it did with me this week, just going over those wonderful elements of hope. If this isn't the case with us, and hopefully it's not, that we are truly energized, we have this wellspring of, of hope because of what God has done for us, then I say this, shine brightly in this dark and dying world and watch what God does. Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.